morning. I'm sitting here with Dr. Steve Moose, University of Illinois Professor of Plant Functional Genomics in the College of ACES at the University of Illinois. We just finished another great Ask ACES Twitter chat on GMOs yesterday, and now we're going to talk in a little more detail about this topic that's on the news and in the hearts and minds of many. So, Steve, let's get started by discussing what exactly is a GMO. Okay, a GMO is um, it's an acronym for genetically modified organism. And in a very broad sense, it essentially means any domesticated crop or livestock species that we use, um, whether in agriculture or, or in other uh, ways. But more recently, it's become associated with um, this more recent advance in biotechnology, where we have the ability to use DNA we find in nature and modify it in ways that improve upon that. And so then the organisms that are produced from that are called genetically modified organisms. And so we have a number of crops um, that are sold today, and in fact, even uh, recently, uh, genetically engineered salmon that is a GMO. So it's been typically thought of as only crops, but more recently we have a fish. <clears throat> and so that is a GMO. Um, it's also a term that is confusing, I think, and it was actually intentionally kind of promoted because of its confusing nature. This term came from the group uh, Greenpeace. So they're the ones who, who coined the term, and they intentionally wanted to come up with a very easily identified but somewhat ambiguous name to get people intrigued enough probably to donate to the cause that they were, were promoting at the time. So when was the first GMO created? Okay, the first GMO was created, uh, so if we talk about, um, actually the very first GMO would be 1972. So that was a bacterium where it was the first to demonstrate that you could move DNA from and design it and then transfer it to another organism. And then in 1983 was the first plant that was genetically modified. Actually, a genetically engineered mouse came in between there, I think 1980. And so then since that time, in that era, then there have been many, many more uh, GMOs produced, primarily for research. And then a few of those have been uh, valuable enough to be commercialized. Great. So what are some of the benefits of GMOs? Okay, so benefits can kind of fall into two category. So the first benefit, I alluded to the research um, that's been done with GMOs. They're a very useful research tool. We would very much like to know the genetics behind important traits, and that's many different kinds of traits, whether that be nutrition or um, environmental sustainability, um, productivity. Um, all those are of interest, and we can observe those traits, but if we know the genetic basis, we can improve them faster and more efficiently. And so um, GMOs have been very useful from a research. So from a uh, benefit is great on the research side. Um, and then there have been benefits in those that have been commercialized. They've actually been developed um, to target solutions to what were some difficult problems um, in agriculture. So the very first ones um, were geared to uh, the tolerance of plants to certain herbicides. Some herbicides are better than others, and some of the best herbicides in terms of effectiveness and environmental safety, unfortunately, weren't uh, the crops were susceptible to those same herbicides. And so you couldn't differentially uh, kill the weeds versus the crop. But with genetic engineering, that was achieved. And so those uh, GMOs then provide a real big benefit 
for controlling weeds in a variety of crops. And then later we have insect tolerance. So that is another very valuable trait, um, very useful because that reduces the need for pesti chemical pesticide spray because the plant basically makes their own protein-based insecticide that's environmentally benign. It doesn't do, it's non-toxic to people or animals. Um, and so it's also targeted only to the bugs that actually munch the plant. Um, so those are benefits. Herbicide tolerance also provides a lot of, well, both traits actually provide uh, benefits in the terms of better soil health in some uh, situations and also less energy spent to actually produce the crop because there are fewer sprayings, fewer trips through the field, uh, few, less tillage, all those things take energy. And so, and there's also reduction of um, farmer time spent in the field, meaning more acres can be covered by a more streamlined and efficient operation. So those are all benefits that we know and there are many more that are either have started to come and maybe on maybe not as well known and that would be improved nutrition there's a genetic engineered soybean on the market it's grown on a small basis that has uh, a better um, fatty acid composition for basically heart healthy vegetable oil basically the same kind of benefits that you get from canola oil are now available in a soybean oil and uh, now we have also um, drought tolerant corn that is just um, beginning to be grown where under extreme drought stress, these varieties have a gene that helps protect them during those times and has no negative effect when they're in good water conditions. So those are some of the benefits that we know now. Someone on the chat asked a great question yesterday about which advances or traits would likely have the most positive impact for smallholders in developing countries. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I think the, the ones that we already have all would clearly benefit small holder farmers because they have the same pressures that big ones do and unfortunately don't have as many of the tools needed to or that have been shown to be useful in a more larger scale agriculture. So, for example, I think the herbicide tolerant crops probably have the biggest impact immediately because it's hard to pull weeds. Weeds are a big problem, obviously, and if I don't have chemical control... I'm going to be pulling them out or using tillage, both of which um, require a lot of labor. And then also with tillage, you're, you're having erosion potential issues. Um, so having herbicide tolerant crops would allow for a more efficient weed control. Insect tolerance also helps protect against loss from insect pests. Um, and then some of these other environmentally um, sustainable traits would also be valuable. How they can really help a small holder farmer is that smallholder farmers are um, in a situation where if things don't go perfectly, they often have one of either mother nature or, um, you know, so we'll say bad weather or bugs or weeds, all those kind of reduce, you, know, you take a hit in yield at each of those. And if you have all of those happen, well, now you're in a situation where you can't even produce enough to survive. So they're below that survival line. And then because they're below that line, they have no chance for income. So not only can they not make their own food, they don't have an income to buy the food when times are bad. That's a very different situation than you know, other parts of the world. So if we can provide in the seed a package that allows them more often to make income, then food security will be a much easier thing. So you've shared how GMOs have benefited farmers. Now, what are some of the consumer benefits that are coming? Um, well, some consumer benefits are already there in the sense that food products are less expensive, likely due to the use of, of GMOs. 
in part because the production costs have been able to be maintained at a at a reasonable uh, rate. You know, as energy costs rise, if farmers can produce more with less energy, then we still come out either either ahead or even. Um, and so that's important to keep in mind as a you know, consumer benefit that you might not be aware of. And then the more direct ones would be, um, there are some, as I mentioned, the soybeans with enhanced nutrition. There are uh, other similar nutritional enhancements on the way. Most The two most recent ag biotech innovations are in potato and apple. And both of these actually use one sort of common strategy to reduce browning. So when both of these, um, a vegetable and a fruit are cut, they can turn brown. And that's basically exposure to oxygen. The plant actually has an enzyme that makes these brown compounds when exposed to oxygen because it makes it less tasty than for a bug to eat it. Um, and also helps start sort of the healing process of that wound. And so basically what was done is the gene for that that the plant already has was just turned down or turned off. So we didn't add any new gene. All we did was sort of prevent one from working that was already there. And because that gene's needed to cause the chemical that causes the browning, if you don't have that gene expressing, the um, apple doesn't brown. And so that would be very useful for if you've seen Happy Meals and there's the apple slices in the that basically those wouldn't need to be gassed to uh, keep from being turning brown um, or treated in some way with a chemical. Instead, they just wouldn't turn brown. They could, um, and so there's longer shelf life. Also, those chemicals, they aren't the most tasty um, to us either. Um, and so that presumably the apples and the potatoes will taste better. In the potato case, there's also a benefit where in frying potatoes, there can be some acrylamide, which is known to be toxic <clears throat> to some people at high dose. Um, you basically reduce the chance that that can even happen, frying of the potato. So, so there's some other benefits that are that are new. So are GMOs used in any non-food products and what might be some examples? Okay, yeah, non-food, there's actually a lot. Um, I mentioned one yesterday, that being insulin, that's used in the treatment with diabetics and that's been produced in bacteria that have been genetically modified. Basically the human version of the gene of in, that makes insulin is, is turned on in the bacteria to mass produce insulin. And the advantage of that over what we used to do is it's in a pure form, it's the human form, um, so it's more effective, and it's very low cost now. So that's one example. There are many, many other genetically engineered microbes that are in our daily life are used. Um, so yeast, we have a whole set of uh, microbes that make specialty chemicals. For example, they'll, they'll make amino acids uh, preferentially, and then those are purified and used to supplement both animal feed, but also if you've ever went to a GNC store and used, you know, sort of, well, you know, the bodybuilding powders and such, that's, you know, part of what's in there are, are bacterial-produced amino acids and many, many other specialty chemicals. So there, that's happening um, daily. Um, and, um, yeah, aside from, I'm trying to think of uh, other, um, there are, you know, non-food plants, for example, there are genetically engineered flowers that have different, sh they're carnations, and they have different shades of purple. And the gene they use in that case is from a corn kernel, the same kind of gene that makes corn, Indian corn purple. You can transfer that gene to a carnation, and there are different shades of purple depending on how uh, strongly it, it, it worked. So, yeah, those are, those are available. 
Well, yesterday we had a couple of questions on the chat about food labeling and wanted to talk a little bit about that today. So if GMO foods are safe, why is there a big push to label or not to label GMO foods? Um, the labeling question is very interesting. It's one that's <clears throat> been a, a topic of discussion for a long time. And, I mean, the history of it is we 1938 was the, I believe that was the year of the um, Food and Drug Policy Act that specified think how things would be labeled um, and, and what the legal authority would be to label. And so the Food and Drug Administration had that has that authority, and they're mandated to label things in, in ways that not on process, but on the composition. So if there's a known material difference that could cause an allergy, for example, or could be toxic to certain people or uh, whatever, but if it's a compositional difference, that would require a mandatory label. But other all other labelings are voluntary. And so this is the this is the crux of the matter in the sense that there's always been a uh, available voluntary labeling. Um, but then some sectors of the food industry who have a voluntary label now want a mandatory label in another segment of the food industry that's different from them, different from them. And so the organic industry has an organic standard. There's a label that's voluntary, but they want to put a mandatory label on a food that's made with a process called GM, GMO, but compositionally has no change. So this then basically is illegal. The FDA doesn't have the authority to do that. So that's one issue. Um, it's not a policy action. It is a, a change in legislation that would be required. And it's interesting you bring this up because just this week, in fact, just yesterday, there was the introduction into the Senate by Pat Roberts from Kansas to have a, a bill that would basically reaffirm the previous acts that have established what FDA's purview is in labeling, but also then prevent the states. This would make it a federal authority, would not allow the states to make their own laws or jurisdictions within states. So it would basically mean this is a federal authority. We have a system in place. There may be some review and improvement of it, certainly, if needed. But um, basically, the labeling would remain voluntary and only would be mandatory if, as already is the, the case, that a compositional difference um, was, was identified. A similar bill passed in the House last fall, um, overwhelmingly. I mean, in today's uh, lack of partisanship, it's amazing how much in favor the whole Congress was in that or the, uh, the House was in that bill. So this would be a very similar one. It has a few differences. I'm sure they'll resolve them in committee, and I expect this bill may, you know, may pass. Um, and so that is in response to the state of Vermont having passed a bill that um, required mandatory labeling of foods made with GM products in their state. And so this then raised the issue beyond just the regulatory. It, it started to impact interstate commerce. And it also impacts, you know, sort of what's the signal our federal government sig you know, sends to our, you know, the rest of the world, basically, on this issue. So um, it's uh, a good thing to see the legislation because it, it basically says the debate's being held in, the, in the, you know, the most important rooms in the land, if you will. So. so do you think labeling food is really as problematic as some companies against it are leading people to believe? You know, this, this again, this... 
I mean, you can think of it from the food industry's perspective that, you know, you've always known you can voluntarily label, and here's a group telling you you have to now. And so their reaction to that is, you know, we, we can do that if there's a reason to, but we're not so enthusiastic about doing it just because you tell us we have to. And so we would like to keep it voluntary is the way that the food industry sort of approached this. There's been some recent changes to that. So Campbell's has come out and said, you know, if this is what consumers want to see, well, we'll do that. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that that goes. But I think that there are um, a number of issues around the labeling that, that make it difficult that go beyond just printing a difference on a label. For example, it raises issues around who's liable when the label is found to, okay, I say no GMOs and there are GMOs in there. Or I say it contains GMOs, then what kind of GMO? Is it a BT or is it an insect tolerance? Is it a herbicide tolerance? Is it doesn't matter? Maybe it's just any of them. But what if it's a nutritional benefit and it happens to be GMO? You then get into a whole series of issues that go beyond the very simple idea that I should just be able to print a different label. That's not the issue. The issue is that first I have to, and it could be different in different states because of the current sort of state approach to this state by state. So that does then start to raise the cost. If I have 50 different labels um, or uh, standards around what could be on the label, that makes it harder to deal with. And it's not, wouldn't be such a big deal maybe if only Vermont was the only state that did it. Okay. But now, you know, Vermont does it, then, you know, what about California? What about, you know, Maine? Uh, I believe they've invested, you know, had some hearings on this recently. And what if these laws don't all agree? Um, and so that's, I think, what the food industry is a little bit nervous about. And as I said, also, there's a signal to your, you know, the global customer or the global provider of your products. If you, if you source any um, ingredients that are, you know, you know, from other countries, what if they say it's not GMO, but it really is, has GMOs in it and no one did the test right. And someone like Campbell's or another company, you know, makes a mistake, an honest mistake, because it, it didn't get tested properly. Um, you know, then who's liable um, on that if there's an issue? What is the testing procedure for new genetically modified products today? Okay, that's a very good question. I think I can answer it hopefully quickly. Uh, it's because I'll try to say in a few minutes what ends up being a, a multi-year process on the part of the, the review. By In the United States, there are three agencies that coordinate this. Uh, the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, is the lead. Then the Food and Drug Administration, and then the Environmental Protection Agency. And the USDA, basically they ask, is it um, safe to grow? The FDA asks, is it safe to eat? And the EPA asks, is it safe for the environment? And so then, you know, a little more in each of those. So the USDA, the first thing they do, safe to grow, is they, they ask that the developer of the product grow this intended GM under first small scale, then graduate up to medium and larger, and eventually commercial production scale. And at each step, there's a review of impact to the environment in the sense of the agricultural system, um, did the plants grow properly, any identified issues on um, any other aspects of agricultural operation. So even, you know, are the plants infected to the same degree with disease? Um, hopefully not, but, you know, or is there any pest damage that's different? Um, the frequency of, 
you know, weeds and all kinds of, you know, things that could get monitored or monitored in this graduated field trial uh, approach. During that time, there's also information collected about the particular modification that's made, what is the change to the genome of the plant, how stable is it, what kinds of new proteins and chemical compounds could be made. And that uh, measurements also then are compared to, if we're talking, let's say, soybean, we'll compare the new GM to all known commercial varieties of soybean and see if there's any difference that is outside the range of normal soybean. If there is not, then that is something the FDA uses to decide on. Um, they use sort of two main criteria. They use what's called substantial equivalence, meaning if this food chemically is like a known safe food, we're going to consider it safe until shown otherwise. Um, and that strategy, even though there is some remote risk that a problem could happen, has been very effective. So that's why they follow it. And the other thing they look at, the FDA, is what's called generally recognized as safe. So again, if we know a food is safe, and it's a very minor variation of that, we consider it safe. And this substantial equivalence then could apply to a situation where, let's say I intentionally change an amino acid in a plant, and that's higher than normal, and that's by on design. How do I know that's safe? Because it's different than the comparison of normal soybean. I could go and say, well, where else would I see that level of that amino acid in nature? For example, in meat, it's way higher than any plant would be. So therefore, we eat meat and people are fine for the most part. So if we've seen it in our natural diet. So those are, that's what the FDA uses in their part of it. The other uh, EPA then really gets involved if there's produced what's called a biopesticide. And there are some. Uh, the insect-tolerant crops have this. And the way they approach things is just like they do for chemicals that are uh, put into the environment, they look at the exposure, which is a combination of the dosage and the duration that it lasts in the environment. So obviously things that last a long time or are, are very potent at low dose you know, are going to be reviewed a little more carefully then. And so then what the EPA does is they set what's called a tolerance limit. How much we feel, based on science, there's an amount of this compound could be. And so they view you know, the protein that's the insect toxin the same way. How much is this protein is in the environment? How, fat, how long does it last? And basically when they do those studies, they find it's very short-lived. It's not very potent beyond the, um, the insects that it actually you know, is known to affect. So, so that's the process. Um, there is also a review as these things go. And mainly the USDA, would look at things like, what if this gene would transfer to, say, a wild relative, a weedy relative? And so in the case of corn, the answer is easy. In the United States, we don't have a weedy relative of corn. It doesn't exist. And so that takes that concern out of the way. In the case of a plant like sorghum, though, we do have Johnson grass that's known, and it can cross-fertilize. So that's why we have never seen a herbicide-tolerant sorghum yet approved because there is some concern, and so we won't do that until there's, we're sure that that concern isn't, isn't really a problem. So my, I bring that up because there are a variety of things that sound like good ideas, but then have not made it through the process because it's been realized that there could be some downsides and it's not worth the risk. So looking to the future, what GMOs and traits do you think we will see in the next five years or maybe even 10 years? Okay, I think... The next five years, we're already seeing some of them now, but we'll see many more of the improved nutrition 
and we may see, um, well, we will see, I think, improved sustainability traits. So like drought tolerance, um, the first generation of those are coming out now. Um, there may be more of those as well as things like nutrient use efficiency and higher yields. All those are certainly being investigated and, and developed and far enough along that we probably will see some of that in the next five years. We also will see some new uh, types of herbicide and insect tolerance uh, traits where the the end solutions are the same in terms of we, you know, the, the insects that are being targeted, the weeds, but there'll be different strategies to do so. They'll give a little more flexibility in that arena, even beyond what's there now. Then in the, in the next 10 years, I think what we will see is a broader range of plants, and maybe I bring up even livestock there because now that the first genetically engineered animal has been approved for food consumption, that being the salmon, that at least raises the possibility that other ones could be developed if there's a reason to do it. In the absence of having any approved before, it wasn't maybe a good investment to you know invest in that technology, not knowing if it would ever be able to be commercialized. But now that their first one has been done, there's a path forward for other, and which there was a very active effort in, in some of that uh, livestock research in the past. So that could be revived, and we might see some of the outcomes of that in the next 10 years. So along those lines, um, can you share a little bit about some of the types of research that's happening in the College of Aces surrounding GMOs? Yeah, certainly. So on the on the crop side or plant side, there are uh, a number of labs doing work on improving uh, crop productivity. So uh, my lab works a lot on nitrogen use efficiency. We have some uh, genes that we're um, investigating now that may have been in maize or in corn in the past, and then we kind of forgot about them for a while, and so we can bring them back. There's also work going on in um, improving photosynthesis. There's work to enhance uh, resistance to certain um, diseases or even insects. And so a, a lot of the research that's going on here, we would call a, um, discovery work, where we're trying to identify the types of genes that would be worth, that would have some um, impact on improving crop production or the sustainability of it or, or nutrition. You know, so we know what the targets would be, but um, we identify genes that might work and then some of that, either we can do the next step as well, and so some of that is happening here, but sometimes it makes sense to partner with industry on, on some of that work. And so uh, those are all happening, happening here now. Also, in the uh, animal biotechnology uh, space, there's research going on, again, on sort of discovery of ways that um, we might be able to bring some of the benefits that have happened by selective breeding in, say, Holstein cattle to a more stress-tolerant cattle that grows and that is raised in Brazil. So there's research going on here at the university um, to bridge that, um, that information. Well, it sounds like there are quite a few positives. So could you spend a few minutes sharing why do you think there's so much outcry among some sectors regarding GMOs? And how do you think farmers and scientists are doing at addressing those concerns? Okay. Um, yeah, there is, there, there is an outcry. It's, it's an outcry among, I'd call it a small vocal, a small minority, but they are very vocal. They're organized. They present things in a very sensational um, emotionally charged way that for the casual observer maybe doesn't know 
a lot about how food production is done or, or, uh, or farming. That's one issue. And then there's biotechnology is this science that's moved very quickly. And people of a generation ago, they didn't cover this even in high school. It wasn't even in the, on the, the conversation. So, um, so yeah, you have this, if it's presented in a way, here's the science going on that's moving too fast and we don't understand it. And then you couple that with, I don't really know how food production's done. So the outcry, I think, takes a, it sort of exploits a very, which I think is sort of the root of the, the debate among, for some people, is that we've been very good in the 20th century. We were great at being able to have a few people provide all of the food for many. Pretty fascinating to think, you know, let's say, you know, 1899, how many people were involved in agriculture and food production, and you knew where your food came from. You either grew it yourself or you knew your neighbor did, or it was your local community, and occasionally something from the outside. And now it's a very different situation, and people are disconnected from the whole food production thing. It's you know maybe a, a downside to it, because I believe that knowing where your food comes from is a very, probably an element of the human condition. It's probably important for survival. I know, you know that I'm eating something that's good for me. I know where it came from. So to take that away is a is a kind of a risky proposition for the psyche. And so this is then the, the, the feature that this group exploits because they are trying to promote an alternative and they promote it through somewhat a fear of, if, you know, of what advances have done have disconnected me. These scientific advances have disconnected me from my food production. Therefore, my way to get connected is to disregard all that and go back to something else. And so that's where the outcry comes from. It, now, it is different than it was in the early 2000s when we had a, quite a, a bit of this as well. And that was completely legitimate new technology. It's just coming out. There's a lot of questions to ask and answer. And it is moving fast. So, you know, people want to know. And that happened. So then education steps in and we let people know, you know, over time, the products come out, 25 plus year history of you know, being, you know, many benefits with none of the downsides that have been, that were claimed could have happened. Um, we've never had a single food safety incident, uh, health risk from a GM crop, and these are grown, you know, globally, consumed by millions of people daily. And on the environmental side, there've been very few of the sort of really scary things that could have happened we haven't seen. So I think that means that the systems we have in place to assess the risk and manage it are working pretty well. well that inspires more confidence then. You know, people get comfortable with it. And more recently, again, it's been this, um, uh, this the motivation behind the outcry is different this time, and it's mainly motivated now by, I'm going to call it the alternative food industry, where... You know, they appeal to the public to pay a higher, pay a premium for supposed health and environmental benefits. And when those aren't, when it's documented now that some of those maybe aren't true, now they have to go to, well, the best way to convince people to buy our stuff is to tell them everything else is bad. And so one element of that is, well, a lot of other things have GMOs in them. So let's say that GMOs are bad and let's require them to have a label that we've already sort of put out there is bad. So it sort of is amplifying our message, but yet our label's voluntary. You know, we don't we don't have to have a mandatory label, but we're going to make the other side, if you will, do. So yes, farmers and scientists hear the concern. 
Um, it's, it's loud and clear among, again, the, the minority that hold it. But there have been repeated attempts. There's so much information out there about um, you know, what GMOs are, how they're made, the impact over time. They've been monitored. So all that's there to be, to be understood, but yet there's still a group that doesn't seem to want to understand. And so at that point, all you can do is move on and, and, and try to do the best you can to use scientific innovation where it makes sense to improve the human condition. And what you do see now, and, and there's a lot of more scientists, here I am today, talking about it to you know many more people. Farmers are out getting the word out of what they do. They understand that there is this disconnect now, and they're actively seeking to make the connections again because they feel it too. They feel like they've been left out of the conversation. And, and in fact, sometimes their message has been distorted by those who have another agenda. And so then they realize maybe we need to get into the conversation in a big way, invite people to see our farms and what we do and, and, um, and how we do it and why we do make the decisions we make. And then also, what are the ramifications if I choose to do an alternative way? What does that mean to the farmer? If I can't use herbicides on a herbicide-tolerant crop, does that mean I've got to go out there and hoe them? You know, I mean, who's helping me? Who's going to help me do that? And how much do I have to pay them? Because I still need to get it done. So all that has contributed to a, just a better conversation about the whole topic. And so that's why we're here today. All right. And the last question for you, why should people eat GMOs? Oh, because they taste good and they're good for you, just like any other food. As I said at the beginning, many, many of our crops you know, have this broad, would broadly be considered genetically modified. Uh, corn is probably our, our greatest creation of genetic modification, and that was done, you know, by the Central American Mayans in, you know, prehistoric times. So, you know, they gave us a crop that has, you know, this tremendous global benefit and impact called corn. So all of our food in many ways has genetic modifications um, as a process that's improved them. And so, yeah, they... We eat them daily, they taste good, and they're good for you. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to help us better understand GMOs today. And again, that was Dr. Steve Moose, University of Illinois, Professor of Plant Functional Genomics here in the College of ACES at the University of Illinois. Thanks for your time and joining us for Ask ACES.